Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts 4.32. Acts 4.32, and that is on page 912 in the Pew Bible. And if you're super astute, you are noticing that that's actually one page back from where we were last week. So what in the world is going on here? Well, as I mentioned last week, the whole reason for this series uh, through the book of Acts is to give us the opportunity to revisit these foundational stories and to apply them to ourselves, to see something and say, well, is that true of us? To, to read a story and say, well, do we need to improve in this? Are, are, we, are we right on page or are we not? In essence, we can use these stories as a plumb line. And so the goal really is to slow down. The intention is to slow down every time we meet something in order to have a conversation that might be useful for us as a congregation. You've probably heard the old expression, it's hard to do maintenance on an airplane in flight. And uh, even if you're hearing that expression for the first time, I'm guessing you know what it means. Uh, It means sometimes you can really only think big thoughts and make big changes in extraordinary seasons, seasons when you're not moving quite as fast as you used to be. And of course, that's what COVID was, wasn't it? I mean, whatever you think about COVID can't argue that, that basically for two years, it, it changed the way we did life. You know, you could argue for three years, it, it's, it's changed the way we did life. And, and for big chunks of that, it, it really changed the way we did church. In fact, sometimes in my darker hours, it seemed to me as I reflected on our experiences in COVID that this virus had been engineered to maximally disrupt corporate worship. It it was a disruptive event, and as a result, it did encourage us towards thinking big thoughts about who we are, what we're supposed to be doing, what this is supposed to be all about. So here in Acts 4 and Acts 5, we have two stories about giving, Uh, one very good and then one very bad. And so this seems like a natural place to slow down and ask some big questions. Why do we do this? Why do we do giving? What's that all about? How should we do this? Are there any rules or guidelines that we should be aware of? That's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. We'll revisit the good illustration uh, that we read actually before the Christmas break. And then hopefully you've got the bad illustration in your brain that we took a look at last week. And then we'll also kind of broaden out our perspective and do a quick survey of the Bible as a whole. So let's begin with the text that is open before us now. Acts 4, 32 to 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, we've already looked at that text in a general sense a couple weeks ago. Uh, but let's quickly make some observations now in terms of what we're seeing in the story specifically about giving. The first thing we see is that giving in this story was grace-fueled. 
There's no mention of any rules or laws that were brought to bear in this particular story. Rather, we're told that in verse 33, great grace was upon them all. Generosity is an overflow of grace. Generosity is a response to who God is and what God has done. That's a fundamental New Testament principle, and we see that on display in the story. The second thing we see here, and I think it's just as obvious as the first thing, we're seeing the giving in the story directed toward real and obvious need. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Now, we'll get into this a little bit more when we get into Acts chapter 6, but what was happening was that all the pilgrims that had been converted, do you remember the, the sort of the momentum of the story, the, the energy of the narrative really takes off in Acts 2 when the apostle Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches that amazing message at the festival of Pentecost. And uh, if you know your Old Testament, you know there were three big Old Testament feasts where all Jews everywhere, and by this point, Jews were spread all over the, the Roman world, where all Jews everywhere were encouraged to gather in Jerusalem for this extended feast. So the place was packed, and Peter preached an incredible sermon, and it says that 3,000 people were converted and baptized on that occasion. Well, that's incredible, absolutely incredible. And if, as you keep reading the story, because as new people are added, they're added to that number, which means those pilgrims didn't go home. So think about it. Imagine you, you traveled to Jerusalem from wherever, from uh, there were huge Jewish communities in, in what we today call Iraq, for example. So imagine you, you traveled to Jerusalem from Iraq, got converted at Pentecost, and just moved in. And so now you've got 3,000 converts who don't have jobs hanging around the church, parking out in Jerusalem. Because if you think about it, there were no other churches in the world. It's not like you could just go back and connect in with your, your local church in Iraq. Remember when uh, Billy Graham, I, I don't know if you ever went to the Billy Graham crusade uh, in Toronto. Um, boy, I can't remember how many years ago that was. It must, that must have been 20, was that 25 years ago? It was maybe even more than that. Anyway, it doesn't, I was a youth pastor at the time. Boy, that makes me feel very, very old. Thanks a lot, Brenda. <laughs> a little hurtful. Uh, but yeah, it was more than 25, however long ago it was, I remember being a youth pastor. And um, there was some training for all the pastors who participated so that you could help people who got converted at the, at the, um, the meeting connect in with local churches. Do you remember that? It was always an emphasis at the Billy Graham crusade. Well, of course, that wasn't possible. If you came to Jerusalem and got converted by Peter's sermon on Pentecost, there were no churches to send you back to. So everybody just stayed. And, and that's what created the financial challenge that we're seeing in these stories. Because if you remember, before the day of Pentecost, the church in Jerusalem was 120 people. Do you remember that? So now you've got a church of 120 trying to provide ministry and support to 3,000 new converts who don't have jobs. That's the situation. And so what we're seeing is how they rallied to meet that situation. People began selling estates and properties and bringing the proceeds and putting them in the common pot. And a particularly noteworthy example of that was Barnabas, who sold a piece of property and didn't just put a portion in, he put the entire sum in. He put 100% into the common pot. So that's what's going on. They weren't giving to the Golden Staircase Fund. They weren't giving to the Chocolate Fountain Fund. 
Uh, they were giving to real and immediate need. All right, the third thing we see here is that the giving into this, in this story went into the common pot in verses 34 to 35. It says, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So that expression, laid it at the apostles' feet, implies formal transfer into the common pot that was overseen by the apostles for the common work of the church. That's very interesting. The text doesn't say that Barnabas was particularly impressed by the needs of the Smith family. So he sold a piece of property and gave some money directly to the Smiths. It doesn't say that. And why is that? Because that kind of Wild West approach to giving will inevitably lead to all manner of abuse, inequality, and inefficiency. Because the Smith family might have told their story to ten families in the church who all may have contributed. Therefore, the Smiths end up with more than they need, whereas the Jones family, who's not as well-connected and who maybe because of a language barrier could not communicate their story as compellingly, got nothing. That's what happens in a completely open system. What happens is the best communicators get the most money. So to avoid that scenario, the money went into the common pot, and the leadership made reasoned decisions about how much went where and to whom. The early church, if you read the New Testament, was actually very careful about how they distributed money. And I would imagine that part of the reason for that is that they were regular readers of the Old Testament. In the book of Proverbs, there are a number of encouragements to be generous towards the poor. But there are also a number of warnings about the need to be wise in terms of how that is done. I was studying Proverbs chapter 6 this week for a future Into the Word episode, and I was impressed by Bruce Walkie's comment on the first paragraph in Proverbs 6, which he referred to as a warning against undiscriminating, impulsive benevolence. Can I tell you something? I've lived my entire life in the church, and I don't believe I've ever heard a warning against undiscriminating, impulsive benevolence. Have you? Did you know that the Bible contains warnings about that? And of course, if you think about it, it's good that it does, because there will always be people willing to take advantage of the generosity, kindness, and merciful spirit of believers. And so the truth is, we do the most good. We do the most good when we submit our giving to collaborative and reasoned processes. Because not all giving is helpful. Some giving actually makes you feel good, but it does more harm than good as it confirms people in destructive patterns of behavior. The Apostle Paul went so far as to say, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. The church had rigorous standards, and they invested heavily in oversight and distribution. In fact, in Acts 6, which we'll get to shortly in a couple of weeks, the church appoints seven overseers of the benevolence ministry, hired in all probability. They invested heavily in the oversight and distribution of their funds because it has to be fair. 
because it has to be wise, because there have to be standards. We can't just give our money to every sad story that we hear, or in today's terms, every sad commercial that we see on TV. Let me tell you something that might ease your guilt. I hemmed and hawed about whether to say this or not, but I think it will be helpful. My wife and I, well, I'll speak immediately for myself on this issue. I rarely, not never, but I rarely give at the cash register. Do you know, this is something that's happened in the last couple of years, where every time you go through the cash register, whether it's at Zares or Tim Hortons or Canadian Tire, they ask you, would you like to add $2 or would you like to add $3 to your thing? And it's going to go to the Tim Hortons camp thing, or it's going to go to the Canadian Tire uh, Help Kids Play Hockey Fund, or whatever, all good, all good causes. I rarely give to those causes, and I'll certainly say that represents a small percentage of my giving, because I don't know anything about those charities. Do you? Do you know anything about the oversight mechanisms for those charities? Have you ever sat down and thought about, is this really what, what we most need in our culture? There's, is there any reason to it? Is there any oversight to it? Or is it just you don't want to look cheap to the girl at the cash register? That kind of impulse-based giving is generally the least effective giving in the world. My wife and I sit down and we make a decision about how much we can give in a coming year. We make decisions about what organizations we're going to support. And I will tell you this, I generally don't give anything to projects where I haven't personally seen, I haven't personally been there. Now, as a pastor, I have the advantage. The church often will send me to investigate projects. So I'm not saying that should be your standard. Maybe a translation of that to your experience should be, I'm not going to give to projects unless I know somebody who's had boots on the ground there. There's just too, much sto- too many stories about inefficiency, too many stories about outright fraud. We do the most good when we work through some kind of a collaborative process. There has to be equity. There has to be wisdom. There needs to be oversight. And so there was in the early church. And their system worked. Luke tells us in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Praise the Lord. Fourth and final observation I want to draw out here is this. The giving in this story was over and above what was required. This really comes out in the mirror image story that we looked at last week, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You recall that Ananias and Sapphira were deeply envious of the acclaim and honor that accrued to Barnabas because of his extraordinary gift. And so they contrived to imitate it. They sold a piece of property, and they told everybody they'd sold it for so much. They said, well, we sold it you know, for, for 1.5. And then they wrote a check for 1.5. And so everybody celebrated them the way that they celebrated Barnabas. But of course, in their situation, it was all a lie. I don't know if you remember what Peter said to them. He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Have you seen that? Barnabas' example did not become a rule or standard in the church. Peter says, you didn't have to give 100% of the proceeds. You didn't have to give 50%. You didn't have to give 5%. That was your money, and you were free to do with it whatever you wanted to. That's what Peter is saying to them. This was not about rules. This was not about minimum requirements. The people in the early church were giving as grace allowed and as the Spirit directed. I think it's important for us to notice that. Now, as I mentioned off the top, the goal for this series is for us to 
have the opportunity to slow down whenever we meet a passage like this so that we can think and we can ask big questions. Our goal is to learn as much as we can from these foundational stories. So I want to stop here and cast our net a little wider. This, of course, is just one story, or I guess you could say two stories, one good and one bad. But in order to say anything definitive about giving, I think we would want to consult the Bible as a whole. So let's do that. Let's zoom out. Let's do a quick survey of what the Scripture says about giving. And the first thing I think I would want to say is this. There is a principle of tithing that stands outside the law. Let me repeat that because all those words matter. There is a principle of tithing that stands outside the law. So a moment ago I said that in this story we're not seeing people animated by by the power of rules or requirements. That's not what we're seeing in these stories that we've read so far, and that is true. But that doesn't mean that there weren't principles that were known and respected. If you have your Bible with you and you're a good Bible flipper, flip, flip over to Genesis 28, all right? So if you were in Acts, which is probably here, flip over to Genesis 28, which is probably here. It's actually on page 23 if you're using a, a pew Bible. While you find that, let me give you a little background. In Genesis 28, Jacob has inherited the blessing from his father Isaac, but he's on the run from his brother Esau. And God visits Jacob in a dream and promises to bless him and to protect him. And in verse 20, we see how Jacob responds. The Bible says, then, that word then is important, meaning in response to God's benevolence, grace, and promise of protection, then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You seen that? Forty-two chapters and 400 plus years before we get the law at Mount Sinai, we have a principle of of tithing, as a form of worship, as a form of recognition, as a way of saying to God, because of all your goodness to me, because of your special grace in my life, I will honor you, I will worship you, I will demonstrate my loyalty to you by giving you 10% of all that you give to me. Here's the point. In the Bible, long before tithing is a law, it is a principle of worship. That's important for us to see. Tithing in the Bible precedes the law. And then it also stands outside or above the law. Again, if you're a good Bible flipper, or if, well, it'll be on the screen if you're not a great Bible flipper, but flip forward to Proverbs 3, verse 9. So Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Wisdom is not law. It's a different category, right? Understanding the book of Proverbs is very important. I always remind people, Proverbs are not promises They are principles. How many hearts get broken in the church when you don't understand that? Because people will say, well, you know, the Bible promises if I raise up my child, you know, in the way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from you. Anybody here wondering if that's a promise? Break your heart if you think it is. It could break your heart. But it is a principle. And the principle is that if you put great ballast in the hearts of your kids, if you teach them about Jesus, if you teach them about the Lord, if you teach them about wisdom, even if there may be some wibbles and wobbles as the wind starts to blow across the bow, good ballast generally produces steady lives, and very often they'll find their way back. So so it's a principle. 
Proverbs are principles. They're not laws. They're not promises. They're principles. And they stand outside the law. They're, they're actually given with a universal perspective. So I don't know if you've noticed this in the book of Proverbs, but they're Proverbs from Solomon, but they're also Proverbs from people outside the covenant. Because wisdom out there, we can grab it and bring it in here, can't we? Universal principles. Wisdom has to do with living in line with the design and ordination of the universe. Okay? And so listen to this. Proverbs 3 verse 9, the wise father says to the young son, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So there's a principle of tithing that we call it a principle of worship. There's also a principle of wisdom. And so here's where it gets complicated. I realize some people will say, well, pastor, you know, the Sinai law covenant has expired. Ergo, there's no law of tithing. And usually when people are eager to point that out to me, the follow-up sentence is, therefore, I can give what I want, and what I want to give is nothing. <laughs> but again, there, there's the law. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But there is a principle of tithing that is a principle of worship that precedes the law. There is a principle of wisdom that stands apart and above the law. So even if you take the law out, there's still an awful lot of guidance here in terms of how we ought to be living. I'll, I'll tell you this. The law, and this is, this is an illustration from my youth ministry days, so may not suit you, but it's true. The, the law functions in the life of God's people kind of like diapers function, uh, right? Like when we have little ones, we put diapers on them because they don't know how to behave the way they should. And, and without diapers, they kind of foul up all the public space. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's, that's what the law is. The law is for followers of God who don't really know how to behave the way they should, who need to be helped and restrained in some pretty childish ways. But the goal is that eventually you will be mature and self-controlled enough to live the way an image bearer should. So when someone says to me, wow, there's no law, ergo I can do whatever I want, that's like somebody saying, well, I'm not wearing diapers anymore, so now I can go to the bathroom whenever and wherever I choose. No. In fact, when you say that, it makes me think we need to get you some diapers right now, lest you foul up our public space. See, it helps to understand what the law was for. The law was to teach the people of God how to behave like the image bearers of God that they are. But the goal was always that you'd be mature. See, maturity means doing the right thing because you know it's the right thing and because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. That's maturity. Isn't that what we want for all of our children? We want them to grow up and do the right thing, not because mommy and daddy are watching, not because we're going to take away your cookies, but because it's the right thing to do. It's the right way to treat people. It's the right way to live. And so here we're seeing that there's a right way to live. There's a principle of worship. There's a principle of wisdom that, that involves recognizing your creator. There, there's a saying, maybe you've heard it before. The saying is, it takes 30,000 pieces to make a car. And the rest of the saying is, and if you have 29,999 pieces, what you have is a really expensive paperweight. And, and maybe I said that too fast. That's actually quite funny. Uh, because <laughs> didn't, didn't we learn that over the last two years with all the supply chain disruptions? If it takes 30,000 pieces to make a car and you have 29,999 but not the one 
more. That's all you got is a paperweight, right? There's a lot of paperweights sitting down in Oakville. But here's the point. Imagine that somebody gave you all 30,000 of those parts, and, and then you, you put them together into a car and sold it for 50 grand. Wouldn't it be appropriate? Wouldn't it be wise? Wouldn't it be fitting for you to give some percentage of that sale back to the one who gave you all the pieces? See, what the father is saying to the son is, see, that's how you live wisely in the world because God gives you everything. He gives you all the raw materials. He gives you the strength to make wealth. He gives you breath in your lungs. So it's wise to acknowledge that. It's it's wise to live like a grateful creature in the created world. So there's a principle of wisdom. There's a principle of worship irrespective of your relationship to the law. All right, so that's the first thing we see as we survey the Bible. There's a principle of tithing that precedes the law. There's a principle of wisdom that is outside the law. Second thing we see is that there is a system of tithing that is regulated by the law. It helps to understand how Israel functions in the Old Testament. They were called together, and they were given the task of manifesting God's righteousness to the nations. So their job was to live the right way before God and toward others. And that's why God gave them the law. It was to teach them how to do that. And so we do find embedded within that law, laws about tithing. There were actually three laws or three tithes required under the Mosaic Covenant. There was a regular tithe to support the temple and the priesthood. You can read about that in Numbers 18, 21. There was a festival tithe for the support of those big feasts I mentioned where everybody gathered in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 12, 17, and 19. And then there was a charity tithe to support the poor. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. That tithe was given every third year. So actually, if you add it all up, the tithe rate in the Old Testament is 23.3%. And all of that was codified under the Mosaic Covenant. And the goal was to facilitate worship, ministry, and charity. That brings us to our third observation. There is a New Testament motivation that surpasses the law. It is very interesting that nowhere in the book of Acts and nowhere in the epistles of the apostles do we find a restatement or a reapplication of the law of the tithe. Now, for one thing, the circumstances were very different. In the Old Testament, we see the church being a church and a state. Well, of course, in the New Testament, the church is a church inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. And we also see in the New Testament that the the church doesn't run or facilitate large international gatherings, festivals. Instead, we have smaller weekly gatherings. And our main feast now is actually a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine. In Baptist churches, it's a bottle of grape juice, so probably no special offering required for that. So the circumstances are different. But the law of the tithe could probably have been very easily adapted and reapplied. But it wasn't. And we ought to pay attention to that. Because it reflects one of the most significant developments as we move from Old Testament to New. In the Old Testament, people were guided and motivated by the law. But in the New Testament, they are guided and motivated by the Holy Spirit and by the principle of love. Now, that is not to say that law and love will take us in different directions 
On the contrary, Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul wants everyone to understand. It's not as though love is, is taking you here and law is taking you here. No, no. They support the same direction. Remember, the purpose of the law was to teach us how to live before God and how to love and care for others. And so we, we've got the same direction. What has changed is the motivation. We've moved from an external motivation having to do with fear of consequences to an internal motivation of the Spirit towards love of God and neighbor. And so you just don't find appeals to Mosaic law in the New Testament, not as binding law. You find appeals to principle. You find the motivation and direction of the Holy Spirit and of love, but not a lot of talk about law. And that lines up with what we see in Acts 4. If you remember how this story goes, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit fell. In Acts 4, there was a further filling. Acts 4.31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So after a second filling, the church begins to overflow in acts of responsive generosity. That's the story in Acts 4. Here's the point. Luke is telling us that the more Holy Spirit there is in your life, the more Holy Spirit there is in your church, the more generosity there will be. That's the message. All right, so let's bring this down to street level. How do we turn all of what we've seen in the story and in the Bible generally, how do we turn all that into some practical counsel for us as 21st century believers? Let me leave you with a couple principles and guidelines. The first one is this. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Listen, let me just put on the table, it is a lot easier to simply appeal to the law As a pastor, I get asked all the time, usually by newcomers, is there a law of the tithe for New Testament believers? And obviously, the simplest thing for me to do would just be to say, yes. And that's kind of true, right? It is kind of true. I mean, there is a law of tithing. It's in the Mosaic Covenant, and Jesus has fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant, and so the Mosaic Covenant has expired, but it remains a very helpful guide for us as believers today. And everything that is codified in the Mosaic Covenant actually reflects eternal principles of wisdom and worship and morality anyway. So yes, in a sense, there is a law of tithing. It'd be simpler maybe just to say that. But can I tell you something, church? The older I get as a man, the older I I get as a pastor, the less inclined I am to appeal to the power of the law. I'd rather use other means to help people further along the way that leads to life. I'd rather use the law to help people understand the direction of love. I'd rather use the law to help people recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because at the end of the day, that's what a Christian is. The Apostle Paul said, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So that's where we want to get you. He also said, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. There is a sense in which As the Spirit begins to guide and motivate you, you leave the law behind. Not in the sense that you begin to travel in contrary directions, but in the sense that you no longer need the lesser form of guidance and motivation. So I guess what I'd say to you is this. Don't ask, am I legally required to tithe? The better question is, what would the Holy Spirit of Jesus have me do with the resources and capacities I've been entrusted with. That's a way better conversation 
And I am convinced that it is a conversation that any truly saved person is capable of having. Second word of guidance I would give you based on everything we've read so far would be this. Be animated by cheerfulness and gratitude. Again, that's the point that's being made in these stories, Acts 4 and 5. Nobody had to do this. It was not a rule. It was something they were glad to do. And that's the kind of giving that is regularly commended in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Listen, if you don't want to give to the Lord's work, brother or sister, there's something wrong with you. If, if you are not glad in the Lord, if you are not eager to serve His people and advance His kingdom, then I would sincerely wonder whether you are saved. Do you have the Spirit in you? Because the whole point that's being made here is the more Spirit there is in you, the more you will be glad and joyful in your giving. So let me speak very plainly here. If you don't want to give, then don't. Don't be Ananias and Sapphira. Don't give as an act of virtue signaling. Give because you love the Lord. Give because you're thankful for all His kindness in your life. Give because you believe that the church is the hope of the world. Give because you believe that the hour is late and the mission is urgent, but don't give reluctantly or under compulsion because that kind of giving sours the giver and those who receive the gift. The third thing and the last thing I would say to you based on all we've read together is this. In your giving, be fortified by the faithfulness of God. In the Old Testament, there was a, there was a time when the people of God had pulled back. P- times were tough. Life was hard. And so all the ministries that had been supported, all the worship that had been fueled by the giving was at a low ebb, and God challenged the people. In Malachi 3.10, he said, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says basically, when have I ever failed to live up to my side of the bargain? Of course, that's a good question. I would say that God never has failed to live up to his side of the bargain. God is faithful. God is good. He always empowers and sustains his people in good times and bad. As a New Testament believer, I have even more reason to trust in the goodness of God than did my Old Testament predecessors. As a New Testament believer, how could I ever question the goodness and faithfulness of God? To everything God did for the Old Testament community has been added to me pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine and 10,000 besides. Great is thy faithfulness. Can you say amen to that, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, as always, for the truth and for the challenge of your word. We pray that it would tune our hearts. Lord, if there are folks here who are 
tempted to give as an act of virtue signaling, I just pray that the story we read last week would press that right out of our hearts. If there are those who are feeling compelled to give by the force of the law, I pray, Lord, that you'd show them something better, that you'd show them your kindness and your grace to them through the person and work of Christ. I pray that you'd show them the goodness, the wisdom of God's ways. I pray that you'd show them the desperate need of those in our world who do not know Christ and who have not been told about the ways that lead to life. And I pray that out of consideration of those things, led by the Spirit, that they would do as you would have them to do, that we would all do as you would have us to do. Lord, for us as a church, I pray that we would be wise and faithful. Uh, I feel somewhat um, challenged by the level of standard and oversight. Lord, I want uh, to make sure that everything we're doing in this church reflects those same values. I'm thankful for all the folks who who work to make sure that it does. But I'm mindful, Lord, that there is in me an impulsive giver. There is in me someone who wants to look good more than more even than do good. And so, Lord, I pray again that you would shape and refine my own character in the direction of these texts that we've looked at today. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.